Hi, I'm Bradley Tusk, the host of Firewall. Throughout December, we'll be doing a special mini-series focusing one episode at a time on half a dozen different industries that we follow, advise, and invest in. 2022 will, in all likelihood, be the year that we push fully past the crisis phase of the pandemic. We know enough about COVID and how to protect ourselves that we begin to get on with our lives and our business. For this series, we're going to look back at how certain industries sped up the adoption of services like digital health and financial services, and we're going to ask what we learned that's worth holding on to and what should go away. So the areas we're going to cover specifically in this mini-series are fintech, healthcare, transportation, media, gaming, and climate. And while that's not everything that we care about here at Firewall, covers a lot of the big stuff. And we're starting off with fintech. And when I was thinking about the smartest people I know in this space, the first name that came to mind for me was Alexa Von Tobel. Alexa is the managing partner and founder of the venture capital fund Inspired Capital. She's written two best-selling books about financial literacy. She founded, built, and sold LearnVest, which is a great you know fintech company. Uh, and so what I really like about Alexis, it's not just that she knows a lot about finance. I'm, I'm here in Manhattan. A lot of people know about finance. Um, but she can just express herself in a way that not only is sort of smart and articulate and intelligent, um, but also just it's good common sense advice for people, right? You know, you'll you'll hear in this episode, she's not talking over people's heads. She's not trying to convince you how smart she is. She just kind of understands uh, what types of decision points regular people face and then has very pragmatic advice on how to deal with it. So at least for FinTech, she's really the perfect person to talk to about the outlook for all these complex trends surrounding decentralized finance, cryptocurrency, NFTs, you know, it's the kind of things we hear about all the time and we nod knowingly like we understand what people are talking about, um, but are kind of mysteries to a lot of us. So Alex and I had a great conversation. We talked about the move towards a cashless society, the growing power of retail investors, the need to really expand financial literacy, and then something that I think has has come up a lot lately, uh, which is Web3. And what does that all mean? What does a decentralized internet mean when it comes to fintech, the financial services, financial literacy? Um, And she has a really great perspective on it. It's a topic that obviously we're all first grappling with right now, uh, but one that I really enjoyed discussing. And I think that fundamentally, this is a real opportunity. You know, finance is a field where there's been a tremendous amount of innovation, uh, both specifically in things like Robinhood, which are traditional purchasing of of stocks, but also obviously crypto, NFTs, DeFi. Um, I would argue that innovations in insurance tech is is part of fintech. Um, And so there's been a tremendous amount of innovation, and yet you still have a legacy system that's still very powerful and hard to disrupt. And the big banks are still kind of these 800-pound gorillas in, in every way, shape, and form. So so it's exciting because you, you see the opportunity, you see people making a lot of progress, um, you, you see entities and companies that are ripe for disruption, um, and it's all happening in real time right in front of us. And so, you know, that's why I was grateful to have Alexa on the podcast. I uh, hope you enjoyed listening to her, and uh, we'll be back next uh, episode with Digital Health with Dr. Bob Wachter, who is, Bob is the uh, chairman of the Department of Internal Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. Welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Um, today is the first episode in a special mini-series we're doing that really looks at you know, where different sectors have gone over the past year or two during COVID uh, and where they're headed and getting some of the top experts in those sectors to come talk to us about it. Uh, really excited today for our guest, Alexa Von Tobel. She is one of the most interesting people I know in tech, in venture, in finance, um, and we're thrilled to have her here. So Alexa, thank you so much for joining us. Bradley, first of all, thank 
thank you so much for uh, for inviting me. This is going to be a ton of fun. Yeah. So just just so that the the listeners realize just how qualified you are for this interview, give us like the one minute summary of your career. Sure. I'll I'll, I'll do my speed version. Um, I grew up in Florida. I was Harvard undergrad. Afterwards, was involved with helping build a company that got acquired by Facebook. I went back to Harvard Business School. Heart of the recession. Dropped out uh, to build one of the early kind of first of its kind fintech companies called LearnVest around the American wallets. So think TurboTax for financial planning. Um, through that, became a certified financial planner, uh, published uh, two books, New York Times bestselling. Uh, sold that business to Northwestern Mutual, uh, one of the largest financial institutions in the country. Uh, joined their management team. And then after three years of doing all of that and having back to bunch of really great companies from Lemonade to Chime to Airtable and, and Uber and others decided to stand up Inspired, which is the fund that we run today out of New York City, early stage fund, really focused on the next wave of entrepreneurs. And I have three kids and a husband. <laughs> so, you, so you've got a lot of free time, it sounds like, basically. <laughs> Loads lots, of free time. But lots I, of movies, lots of bowling, yeah. nap, naps, things Yarn, like that. lots of yeah. knitting. Yeah, you know. Exactly. So, so tell me, you know, Given your expertise in fintech, when COVID hit and everyone was sort of petrified and didn't know what to do, if I had said to you on March 20th, 2020, okay, Alexa, where's fintech going to go? This thing's going to be really bad. Where, what happens to fintech over the next year and a half? What do you think you would have predicted? Um, so what was, one, I was quite worried just like everybody else. Um, and I was worried going into it, Bradley, as somebody who's spent my career focused on the American wallet and everything that's happening to it from crypto to NFTs to um, just the, the inequality of it. And then what I started to see quite rapidly uh, before all of this was, you know, the dramatic uh, gap between the 1% and everybody else. And what became very clear right as COVID started heating up was that, and, and, and really the tech force took over, meaning, wow, this is going to be a digital revolution. Um, it became very clear quickly that that was going to become a problem that was only going to widen that income inequality gap. And so where my head went quickly was I was very, very worried about the tens of millions of Americans that were displaced from their jobs and what that meant, because Bradley, I knew going into this, 78% of them lived paycheck to paycheck before COVID. They had less than $400 in savings before COVID, $9,000 in credit card debt before COVID. And then you throw COVID into it, which I don't know about you, Bradley, but it was super stressful for me and my household. And <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I would argue it was a little stressful for us too. It was stressful yeah. for everybody, right? Yes. And so um, adding just crushing economic stress on top of that wasn't going to be good. And so I think that those were the things that I was thinking about back March, April, um, was just sort of this very clear world where you had a utopian society that was going to be able to access tech and make more money and do great things. And then this dystopian society of normal, everyday people living in three to 400 square feet of space, uh, staring at their phones for 16 hours a day with mounting financial burden and being furloughed from work with kids. That's, that's what kept me up at night. So, so we're we're a year and eight months later, or something like that, um, and it doesn't seem like that's totally how how it played out. So, t tell me what you think happened, and then how would you kind of factor in what the government did in terms of bailouts, rental assistance, stimulus programs, in terms of kind of preventing the dystopian nightmare that you outlined? Um, so, I would say first, I'm going to start with some positives because there are some positives. Um, I think one of the amazing breakthroughs of the last two years was just that 
the technology around fintech has actually, you know, it, it, it's quite certainly become quite democratized. So what do I mean by that? The fact that anybody who wants to wake up can go to Robinhood and trade or, or public and trade free of charge and easily and in fractional shares. That's a beautiful thing, Bradley. Like when I was 20 and graduating from college, like that didn't exist and I couldn't do that fee free. And um, so those sort of tools have truly become democratized and that access has been democratized, which is amazing. Um, second, um, you know, we've started to see 54 million Americans are own crypto or Bitcoin in some way in places like Coinbase and everywhere else, Gemini, where people can go online and, you know, quickly get access to this new, this, this, this new fintech regime um, has been really fascinating. And I think you've started to see digital banking usage increase. Chime has tens of millions of users, you know, really just fascinating access for people to take care of their wallets in ways that is better than I could have hoped, you know, 10 years ago when I founded LearnVest. That's the positives. Um, what worries me, Bradley, about all of that, and uh, my second book was called Financially Forward, The Future of Our Wallets. Um, what worried me a lot was that we still don't totally understand the wallet. We haven't been educated on financial literacy. And it's, it's so simple, Bradley, but the basics of our wallet, how credit card debt works, how student loans work, how to think about a mortgage, how to think about saving, what is living within your means? Like mathematically, just what is it? Give me, give me a rule, right? Um, that still doesn't exist, but now we've made it easier for people to go and do a lot of things with their money. And some of that's really positive because you can see people go and make great money and buy Bitcoin. But what if Bitcoin goes down, right? And that's the only $300 that you have or the GameStop dynamic that we watched where that was almost a, you know, a, it was almost a social movement to some degree uh, or weaponization of the wallet. Um, those are the sort of things that I, I think I got pretty nervous about because we took an already precarious wallet, meaning most people are already pretty stressed. And while yes, the tools are now more democratized, people can do more with their money, but whether or not they understand what they're doing with their money is still a big question. And in fact, you know, Vlad and I chatted at length about financial literacy, Vlad, the founder of Robinhood, um, and, and, and the things that must happen to protect Americans. So that gives you a flavor of the sort of things that I was pretty focused on and pretty worried about. And, and given that there's been this sort of explosion of interest um, in fintech, in crypto, kind of to your point, the democratization of, of all of these tools. Um, did it take everyone kind of being in a 300 square foot place, staring at their phones for 16 hours a day to kind of let people realize that this was available to them? Or do you think th that just the advances in technology would have led to this either way? I think, you know, my personal opinion was that it was a, it was a perfect storm. It was people that were, you know, truly financially stressed being furloughed and, at home for 16 hours, watching the internet, staring at their phones. It was the fact that the stimulus checks were coming in that gave them a, a minute of, 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 of breathing. Um, and the fact that at those exact moments, these, these, these tools were available and their brands were growing. And I think it all came together um, to allow people to say, I'm going to go in some ways and, in, in, you know, there's a, there is an element of gambling in here, Bradley, which is, again, what kind of keeps me up at night. 
Um, gambling your, your only $500 is a dangerous move, right? And we, we all know that it can end badly. Um, there, was an ele- there is an element of gambling in here. And for some people, it's gone quite well. And for some people, I, you know, I'm sure there's many, we've heard many pretty scary stories over the last year. It didn't go great. And so I think it was a perfect storm. I, I, I think that the addition of stimulus checks being furloughed at home, trying to figure out a way to give your own family a, a, a moment of, of, of brightness, um, I think that's a lot of what we saw yeah. and what we're still so, seeing, by the way, Bradley. For sure. For sure. And, and given this kind of explosion of, of interest in crypto, even though to, to your point, it's not like a guarantee that crypto just always goes up. Um, do, do you think it's that people just look at it as sort of a, a, a security that's fun to bet on? Or do you think that some of its underlying inherent qualities and traits like being sovereignless, being fully digital, uh, kind of being encrypted and all of that, you know, hold some kind of appeal that, you know, people who aren't into crypto maybe don't really understand. I, I think that's a wonderful question. And I would say the answer is all of it, uh, okay. all over the spectrum. I think that um, you have, uh, so when I wrote my second book, Bradley, Financially Forward, The Future of Your Wallet, it really was a, a let's make understanding of crypto uh Easy. I, I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida. Easy for everybody that I, you know, know in, in you know, second tier, third tier, fourth tier cities better understand what this is. Um, so fast forward four years, um, I think to some degree people think it's a really interesting security that is going up, and everybody now knows somebody who's made more money than they expected by buying this security. Um, yeah. On the flip side, I think there's some people who are, who are real. I, I, uh, you know, travelers where they're really coming on the journey to learn and, you know, like the concept of, you know, Bitcoin may be a great hedge to inflation if the U- U.S. dollar is, uh, has inflation mm-hmm. risk like it does right now. Um, so I think there's some people that are thinking about it in, in, in more advanced ways and stores of value. And, you know, 21 bits is 21 million bits is, is you know, a, a finite number. Um, on the flip side, I think there's some really some interest in these bigger visions of, um, you know, this future autonomy and what it means to have DAOs and, you know, decentralized organizations. And, you know, I think it's, we're seeing all of it. Um, but, but Bradley, just to, to really nail my, my point, it, it, you know, I have a grandfather, he was from South Bend, Indiana. I was a welder. He's one of the best humans I had in my life. Um, he couldn't really make a lot of mistakes in his wallet, right? He, he was supposed to live till 78. That was life expectancy back then. Luckily, he lived till 88. You know, he had a pension. There, when you, there wasn't credit cards, you had to pay for things in cash. When you got a mortgage, it was one times your salary, not, you know, 10 times your salary. So net, 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 he couldn't really mess things up outside of maybe, you know, he could go gambling, right? Like he couldn't really make huge mistakes with his wallet. Fast forward to today, um, we live much, much, much longer, potentially 100 to 110 uh, we don't have pensions because those no longer companies no longer pay. Um, we no longer work at one place for 40 years. Instead, we work at many, many places. And right now, 50% of the economy is literally being fueled by the gig or creator economy, which means you're a solopreneur to some degree. Um, you could have lots of credit card, in fact, debt, which means the average American is 9,000. Most of us don't have enough savings uh, to live one month. And we are in a position where your retirement is solely your responsibility. You have to be able to afford 30 years of retirement. And then finally, Bradley, we piled student debt on top of that and a mortgage that's 10 times your, your, your salary. 
When you add all of that up, you can make way more mistakes with your wallet is the punchline. It's a far more precarious wallet than it was for a simple time like my grandfather's. And so th that's a good example of why I love democratizing the tool, but if you don't match it with some guardrails, um, and crypto is a great place also, and that's why you know you want to think about the everyday person completely destroying their ability to feed their kids. And, and, and that's why it matters so much. So if, if I made you uh, as head of the SEC or Treasury Secretary or whatever job you might like uh, and said, okay, um, how do we kind of institute the right guardrails and balance to sort of let people have access to these tools, but, but not make mistakes that are damaging to or, or overwhelmingly catastrophic to their lives, what would you do? It's a, great, it's a great question. And I think it really is figuring out exactly how to draw the line where you don't stifle innovation, but you protect truly the, the people who could be most damaged by the innovation. And so where that line gets drawn is quite complicated. Um, education is a massive piece of this puzzle. And making sure we, we figure out who to hold accountable, is it the organization, is it the technology, is it the individual, for, for the educational piece. Because getting access without understanding the risks um, is what we have to be cautious about. So in that said, I'm also a huge proponent, you know, I, I run Inspired Capital, I'm a huge proponent in these technologies and what they can create and what they can unlock. So you also don't wanna stifle the innovators or demotivate the innovators. Um, so it's about really making sure we draw the lines around education. And then the other thing, Bradley, is really making sure we draw the lines to protect against truly nefarious behavior. And I think that's one thing, you know, not every innovator out there um, is, or, or person, you know, pushing the bounds of a technology uh, is, is, is there for good, right? You know, one of the things that really helped blockchain and crypto take off was, you know, the, the, the black, you know, the dark web where yeah. really nefarious things were happening, right? So it, it, that, that's all to say, it, it's really about figuring out the, the, the line between innovation, education, and truly nefarious behavior. And how do you draw those lines? And they're complicated by technology. And what do you, so I, I've been kind of fixated on this idea lately that there, you know, while we clearly need crypto regulation, and by the way, like you, as an investor in, in platforms like a Coinbase or a Circle, I want regulation because there's nothing, nothing separating my portfolio companies from just any scam artist out there and the whole industry falls apart. Yeah. Um, but but with, with that said, it seems to me that with China banning crypto, which was probably a pretty predictable thing to imagine, um, there is an opportunity for the U.S. to say, hey, here is an industry that we can be the global hub of. Yes, it's a sovereignless currency, but in many ways, the spirit of crypto kind of fits the spirit of American innovation. Yes. Um, the, and so as a result... What if we were to say, look, we want those jobs here in the U.S. and yes. we will create policies designed to incentivize that rather than just looking at crypto purely as this evil that has to be you know, solely regulated and condemned and, and stuck in a corner somewhere. Do, do you think that's possible? I, absolutely. And everything you just said, you heard me say yes, 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 because I... You know, one of the one I was really fortunate. President Obama actually had entrepreneurial ambassadors for the country. You know, in the same way that there's an ambassador to Italy, he he invited a few of us, and I was really fortunate to become one. And that's actually where I met my now business partner, Penny Pritzker, former U.S. Secretary of Commerce. Um, one of the most amazing things about America is the spirit that we have in building and innovation. It really is part of the American fabric. And to your point. This crypto blockchain, uh, this entire Web3 future is in many ways the future. Uh, and 
why not make us the world leader in that? And let's, what will that do, Bradley? Obviously, create jobs. It will fuel uh, value to the United States. And so how do we make sure we do that while also, again, figuring out how to protect um, those who could be badly harmed? And so I think net, 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 I would strongly prefer uh, that to be a, 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 a U.S. intellectual uh, IP that we have because we become the best at it. Um, and I think that's where we're headed, actually, right now. I think, um, you know, there's, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here in New York City. There's just the entire East Coast of the United States uh, from New York to Miami is, you know, just fueled right now with the Web3 future. And uh, it, it's really an exciting time. And I hope that that continues to just grow and develop. And I, I hope that the government continues to nurture that because it is about jobs. It is about innovation. And we've always been innovation first here in America. Yeah, it's a huge opportunity. Um, so how do you think DeFi and NFTs fit into that? And if you don't mind, g- give the listeners sort of your take on kind of what each of these is and why they matter. So let me just quickly start with uh, Web3 in general. Uh, okay. And just I'm going to give a high level point of view. I think that's probably the, the best way to kind of wrap my own brain around it and, and how I've been thinking about it and learning about it. But uh, in plain English, um, Web3 very much is, you know, a, a new version of the Internet. We're seeing new infrastructure being born, new protocols being born um, in the same way that we had email protocols and, uh, you know, Google was born. Uh, we're, we're seeing an, an entirely new, and I'm going to call it Internet for simplicity, emerge. And it is being born on this concept of uh, decentralization, meaning nobody is a sole owner. Everybody that touches it is a participant and and, an owner and gets to participate in the upside. And so in so many ways, this is potentially the future of what we've been calling, many people have been calling it the ownership economy. Um, And so I'll give a a quick stark example. Um, When Mark Zuckerberg created Facebook, a lot of value was accrued for everybody at Facebook, but most of the value accrues to the founder or to the, the core owner, and everybody else gets less and less and less. Uh, in, in a future Web3 world, um, everybody that touches the ecosystem is an owner, and everybody that participates is an owner, and as value goes up, everybody goes up. And that, that, that's a powerful concept. And what we're seeing in, it do, in uh, what we're seeing happen right now, Bradley, is that I'm imagining full new ways of making money, full new labor forces happening, and not just the artist example, where if you create art every time that that art changes hands, that artist would get a cut of every time it moves, which is obviously a wonderful thing for creators and people with creative assets. Uh, It almost operates like royalties going forward. But you, Bradley, you're a thought leader uh, in, in always. And every time you publish a paper or a piece of work, and any time that anybody reads it, reads it or uses it or quotes it, you could get paid. And so what you're starting to see is a technical future that creates ways for individuals who create, put forth new knowledge, new innovation, new, new thoughts, um, a, a new body of work of any kind from music to, to, to art and, and to intellect um, can earn uh, and actually capture the upside of their work, which doesn't really exist perfectly in, in Web 2. So that is the future. And obviously, crypto and Ethereum and Bitcoin 
is is the fuel it's the money that that powers that that future and um there's a lot of problems with that future right now there's that that are being worked out you know the second layer of ethereum is what is going to make it cheaper for for us to be able to fuel that future and you know there's a lot in motion um but that effectively is the vision that i think um and i will never pretend to be the world's expert at it right now i think all of us are still learning and the world's evolving underneath us um but it really is beginning to give us this future world where you can see a new way of operating where all of the value doesn't accrue to the few got it yeah i, th- I think that makes total sense and so what if 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 you're sort of a listener of this podcast and you're saying okay um, I, I want to be on the, the front end uh, of that movement. You know, what should they be doing? Are there particular companies that you're invested in that they should be using as as platforms and tools? Are there things that you're reading that, that you would recommend? Are you working on a new book? You know, things like that. Um, I, well, first, I'm always working on something, Bradley. <laughs> uh, uh, so nothing to announce yet, but just, you know, starting to noodle on a few things. Um, th- here's what I would say to my own family members, my own best friends is, um, you know, first, you've got to have like a a solid financial plan that allows you to to thrive and exist today. Um, And this is like the certified financial planner in me, which is like, please don't go put all your money in crypto. Um, However, um, one potential thing for everybody to consider is taking one tiny percent of your net worth, maybe it's half a percent or one percent. And, you know, if you can stomach the fact that it again, will go up and down. It will be quite volatile and it could be taxed in a lot of different ways because we don't quite know what that's going to look like. Is it, you know, is it an investment asset? Is it a store of value? Is it like cash? You know, there's a lot of questions there. Um, But we will see, uh, you know, for for, for people to begin to participate in this future, um, you know, it's sort of like the gold rush in some ways, Bradley, which is there's something exciting happening, but you've got to be really careful of a lot of fraud. And also you have to assume that, None of us know what time frame it could take place in. Is it five years, 10 years, 15 years? All of those are questions that really smart people don't have the great, great answers to. And so if you simply want to participate, finding a way to maybe put a tiny, tiny, tiny part of your net worth that if it goes to zero, you're truly okay with it and you're not going to get sick and you're not going to feel stressed. Um, you know, starting to understand this ecosystem that is, you know, putting a little bit of money, tiny bit. Um, isn't a bad idea so that you can begin to learn and, and understand also how it may impact whatever you do for a living right now, right? Um, you know, you should always, I, I say ABL, Bradley, always be learning. Um, you want to make sure that you understand how this world may impact whatever you do for a living also. Um, yeah, and that makes makes total sense. When I kind of wrap up, it's okay, with a, a lightning round where I'm just going to say in five years or 10 years, I'm going to throw some different questions at you and you tell me whether or not you think this is realistic. So in, in five years or 10 years, whatever you prefer, do all kind of responsible investment portfolios, like you just mentioned, include crypto in some way? Yes, I, I would almost say and undoubtedly, and actually back to my point, 54 million Americans right now own crypto. And there's probably only about 160-ish million adult Americans or so, right? Um, so that's pretty, and again, that's sort of directionally accurate, but uh, you get my point, which is right now, almost a third of portfolios have crypto in some capacity already, which is pretty mind-growing. And actually, it's PayPal, which is where they're accessing it, Bradley. Right. In five or 10 years, then, is is crypto in the United States used in any way as an actual currency? And if not the U.S., is it used in other countries as an actual currency? I would say that it will be used in both. Um, and I would argue that it's already being used as a currency today in the United States. 
And, you know, I'm sure you saw Mayor of New York's going to take his first three paychecks in crypto. And yeah, um, yeah. I, I would argue it's happening right now already. Uh, in five or 10 years, we'll go 10 on this one. Anyone under the age of 65 no longer carries cash. So I'm going to be short that one. It's really surprising, actually. I, you know, I actually was pulling the stats the other day for myself, but cash is just this beast that is really hard to, to, to take to zero. It has been coming down slowly over the last two decades, but not as precipitously as you would expect, even with credit cards and now Apple wallets and Apple Pay and contactless pay and all of these things. And um, for a variety of reasons, uh, people still use cash. So what I would say is in 10 years, it will still continue to be down. But I would say that cash, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll pick a number. I think cash will still be 10 to 12% of circulation of, of money. Got it. Potentially. Right. Let, last one. G given kind of everything we've discussed over the last half hour or so and all the democratization, all these tools that you invest in, um, is what we saw with uh, Robinhood and GameStop or AMC or whatever it is, retail investors really driving the market and setting the market, um, does that become the norm? That's a really great question. And I followed that very, very closely. And I think the takeaway for me was that was almost more of an act, a political act, uh, a, a retail finance being weaponized. And I consider that not just a everyday American thinking about investing, but really rallying a group of people to contort the market in an interesting or problematic way. I think that showed us what the, 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 I think it showed us the possibilities of what self-organization of a group of interested parties on a topic can do to actually cause, cause, send a message, cause problems, hurt somebody. Um, so I actually almost view that as like a weaponization of, mm -hmm. of personal finance that, you know, to my own knowledge, I hadn't seen. Um, and so I actually thought of it in like the more, all of the dangers that could come out of that long term. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Cool. All right, Alexa, thank you uh, so much for your time. You've been really generous with it. Um, if people want to read your books or just learn more about you, uh, how do they do that? I literally Google Alexa Von Tobel on Amazon. They're sold everywhere. And my main podcast that I do with Inc., you can find Alexa Von Tobel, uh, The Founders Project uh, on Inc., anywhere podcasts are. Um, and then if you have great ideas, come find me. Uh, we're at Inspired Capital here in New York, and you can find us online anywhere. Cool. Alexa Von Tobel, thanks for joining us. Bradley, you're the best. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor.